0: Welcome to Pro Corner with Austin Sirhoff. My guest this week is stand up comedian and former national champion swimmer Laura Sogar. As a comedian, Laura is a producer for Now and Then Comedy in New York. She's also a podcast host with the podcast called She Does Stand Up Too, which she hosts with her boyfriend Matthew. Um, as a swimmer, Laura swam for the University of Texas and Bluefish Swim Club up in Rhode Island. And she was a U.S. national champion, an NCAA champion, and a world championship silver medalist. She had a pretty amazing career. I've known Laura for over 12 years now, and we had weirdly parallel swimming careers, actually. We both represented the United States on three U.S. national junior teams in high school. Two of them we were on together. And then we were... Both classmates at the University of Texas, where we each won an NCAA title. Um, A little bit of poetic parallel. I was an NCAA champion in my very first swim as a freshman, whereas she won her NCAA title uh, in the 200 breaststroke in her very last swim as a senior for Texas. And then we also represented the United States at the 2013 World University Games uh, in Kazan, Russia. The thing that I've admired most about Laura over the years is she gets the job done. And you we can talk about in the episode how that work ethic and that studiousness and that ability to get the job done started when she was very young. She swam for Bluefish Swim Club in Rhode Island and at least while she was there and while we we were growing up and I heard about Bluefish Swim Club from afar. That was one of the hardest working teams in the country. We had we were no slouches at North Baltimore where, you know, we worked really hard and there were Olympians coming from our team every year, including people like Michael Phelps. But I would hear about what Bluefish was doing and be like, oh, my gosh, thank God I don't have to swim for them. Um, And I have to believe that it was instilled in her very early. And we discussed this in the episode, so I don't want to step on it too much, but She swam for a team like that where you have to work so hard all the time. And the one rule that her parents had with her with swimming was if you start a season, you have to finish it. And that's something I've actually been hearing a lot from uh, high achieving athletes is that they're not forced to do their sport, but when they start something, they're expected to finish it. And the best example of that At least in my in my time with her we were both seniors on the 2012 2013 texas teams and the couple years up to that point the men's and the women's teams hadn't really been in sync with um hanging out with uh what's the word with recruiting and that year they had just had a coaching change that people were really excited about there was a culture shift and i really wanted my youngest sister jordan to come to texas and laura and i were two of the people in charge of recruiting for our respective teams so i remember throughout that entire fall we were constantly coordinating with each other lots of group texts with all the other seniors and laura was always the one spearheading hey what are we doing with the men's team what are we doing with the recruits what do we got what's this what's that how can we help and it ended up with the job getting done Uh, my sister went to texas she had an amazing experience And while Laura was still swimming there as a pro, she was someone that my sister looked up to. They they did the same events and the way that Laura carried herself was a way that uh, my sister admired and learned from. Now as a comedian, she has a very intentional, you guys hear me say that word a lot around here. She has a very intentional and very systematic approach to her improvement and how she progresses through that specific profession and we talk about that in the episode and you can tell that it's derived straight from what made her a national champion as a swimmer. Before we get to the episode with Laura, if you like what you heard in today's podcast, check out the pro corner, Patreon page. We'll have weekly updates, uh, with bonus content from podcast guests. There will also be things coming in the future like training plans for myself and other professional athletes, um, one-on-one interaction with myself, and a monthly newsletter. This week, I did a deep dive with Laura into her very specific process for improvement that she uses for stand-up comedy. And we talk about things like visualization, uh, the, the way to get the most out of video review, so if you're someone who wants to improve themselves in high-value situations like sports, um, like things like public speaking, or any other situations in your life where there's a lot on the line and it's something that you get nervous about, then check out the Pro Corner Patreon page. Go to patreon.com procorner to subscribe today. And now, Laura Sogar. I'm here with Laura Sogar, um, fellow Texas alum. You guys have been hearing that a lot. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Fellow NCAA champion like myself, and also now a current stand up comedian and the host of She Does Stand Up Too. Laura, how's it going?
1: Hi, thanks for having me. It's going well, and she does do stand up too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love the question mark at the end because when I tell people about it, I have to say, well, it's it's uh she does stand-up too. And they'll be like, what? No, like, no, no, there's a question mark. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it was the reason we did that was because people would always ask Matt. Since my boyfriend, Matthew Broussard, is an established stand-up comedian, and they'd be mm-hmm. like, Oh, your girlfriend, she does stand-up too. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, god damn it. Yes. <laughs> like take podcast.
0: Take the thing that bothers you and then turn it in, and then turn it around and make it something powerful for yourself. I love it.
1: Hundred percent.
0: So, what besides everything that I kind of introduced? um, You're living in Brooklyn. You and Matter there doing stand up. What's uh, what's life like for you these days? What are the things that you're up to?
1: Oh well, you know, every day is a new journey, especially in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Um, but life is good. It's been really, it's been really a crazy like four years. I didn't. It was wild this summer just noting that it had been four years since I retired from the pool and mm. how much my life has changed and how much I feel like I've changed as a person, um, but also how much I still like really, you know, felt close to my swimming background and stuff like that. So this year has obviously been a trip for for everybody for obvious reasons. You know, we spent some time quarantining with family at the beginning of this year. Never ex- thought I would spend that much time with my parents in a yeah. row again. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a lot. <laughs> it was obviously really
0: nice to see them. But we were also like,
1: I'm happy we live in an apartment by ourselves. You mm-hmm.
0: know? Having a little bit of your own space. My wife and I actually, we had a brief, I'm just going to call her Molly from here on out because everybody hears me reference my wife for now nine episodes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Molly and I briefly considered at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, asking my parents about should we go in with them. And I was like, you know what, we have our own space i think i think we just gotta ride this thing out
1: yeah i agree i mean we are obviously in brooklyn so at that point we were like this is you know this is definitely a pretty intense area to stay at so we went down to florida uh and it was really nice i mean you know we complained but we were sitting on the beach like for the first month just by ourselves like this is beautiful (laughs) yeah but uh, but you're still just like way up in each other's business and everyone's trying to work on their, you know, doing their Zooms in the different areas of the house. <laughs>
0: Gosh, um, there was like a month where it was like I had never heard of Zoom and then all of a sudden it was the only thing that existed on earth. <laughs>
1: totally, yes. Everything revolved around Zoom. And then I felt it was kind of weird because I feel like initially we all tried to do our social stuff, like our evenings like, oh, I'll zoom with friends, but then you're like, this isn't fun. I don't want to zoom with people anymore.
0: No, it's it's like <laughs> you know what it reminds me of is um oh, it'll be fun to go to Home Depot and then you go to Home Depot and, Home Depot, and it's not fun and whatsoever. It's like there's <laughs> yeah, <you're> like, <laughs>
1: there's measure-
0: Yeah, there's this is there's measuring tape and lumber. This is not fun whatsoever. I miss yeah. actually speaking to you in person. We um, tried
1: to do a, an alumni hangout for like the Texas women's team. And it yeah. was great because like, obviously the couple people who had always, who were loud, you know, completely dominated the conversation and you can't exactly share the screen.
0: <laughs> so, and everybody else has that, like, yeah. you can tell when someone wants to talk like that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but there's yeah, 20 the, uh, people. So everyone's just like, ah, all right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, April, 2020, never forget when Zoom tape took over the world. Cool. Um, so what is day-to-day life like right now for a budding stand-up comedian and podcast host how are you how are you managing that lifestyle right now
1: yeah it's um well it's been interesting because we had summer and um you know new york obviously got hit really hard early on but then Mm -hmm. um did a really good job of kind of recovering from all that and we were able to do a lot of outdoor things and a lot of outdoor events so um stand-up started coming back and it was um in parks stuff like that and i am you know an aspiring comedian here i've been uh, you know, performing stand up and now producing as well for the last couple of months. Um, and so we just started, you know, doing it outdoors. Uh, and it was mm-hmm. nice because the weather permitted that for a while. So day to day, like you just, yeah, I obviously I work during the day. I have a, I love my job. I do tech sales for a cybersecurity company. Um, so that's, I've always been remote. So that was nice that I was able to just continue kind of with my life of, remote work. So that wasn't a huge adjustment for me. Um, but then just instead of going to comedy clubs, you go to a park. So I've got to say there was a couple of months there where it was kind of nice where you're just enjoying the outdoor air and, you know, the sunshine versus just being in a basement with a beer. Um, also fun, but a different vibe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there was also obviously shows. A lot of the shows turned to rooftop shows and things like that. Um, I host one in a, in a patio, um, which was really nice. Now we're actually in a tented this patio essentially it's always just these like outdoor spaces that have been outfitted slightly differently to handle um you know a little bit more of the elements so um but now it's getting cold so the day-to-day has definitely slowed down where um you know not quite as many things going on in the evenings just because we're you know you're limited to places that have heat or like heaters or whatever it may be Mm -hmm. and um so uh but it's been good because we've been able to focus more on the podcast um podcasting has been really fun. We've, you know, the nice thing about living in New York, once again, is there's a ton of extremely talented folks. So the podcast, as you mentioned, is called Sheet Stand Up 2. It's all about my journey as a standup comedian. Um, I've had a really interesting experience with it because I've been dating Matthew, who's a professional. He does it for, you know, his income and um i dated him for a while like three and a half four years or so before i started stand-up myself i was doing improv during that time so i was still like comedy or stand-up adjacent um but not directly involved in the scene itself so it was it was interesting because i've learned a lot of lessons from like just being you know around it and kind of running in parallel and obviously going to a weird amount of shows like just so many shows to Mm -hmm. watch Matt, and then i'd obviously see other people as well and i loved it Um, so I had a ton of experience in like just the watching component and like observation and understanding how some of the mechanics worked. Um, but then I had to go through the process of like learning how to do it myself. And it's kind of like, you know, you can watch someone ride a bicycle and you can really understand, you know, the theory of it. Like you hold the bars, you pedal your feet, but it's not until you actually do it yourself. You have to just kind of fall like a a bunch Mm -hmm. before you'll learn how to balance yourself and all those things. Like you're, it's just the same as trying to learn like another physical activity, um,
0: working a crowd,
1: learning how to do jokes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's been the interesting part is just doing this podcast and talking about, um, what I was learning and talking about how, like, like things that had happened to me throughout the, the week or the two weeks or whatever, since we had last recorded. And then Matt getting his feedback on it and, um, kind of going back and forth and we've had guests on we've obviously leaned a little heavier on the guests recently just because um the development on the stand-up side is a little slower with mm-hmm. everything shut down <laughs> so
0: yeah um, and, and it's getting colder so no more park comedy
1: park comedy is definitely it's also the other bigger part is that it's good get, it gets dark like it's already getting dark it's 4 40 or so
0: dude my presidential campaign 2024 shut down daylight savings time. no
1: more especially this year should have been the year we were like we can skip
0: it. Yeah, yeah. Those are my political platforms and Mayo shaming and get rid of daylight savings time forever because it is a waste of time. I feel like 5 p.m., it's 10 p.m. and I, it's a really a major bummer, dude. Um it is. We'll dig more into technical details later, but I just wanna give everyone kind of a preview of what we're gonna dig in about the standup part. Um, what have you noticed about performing in a park, just briefly, that's different from performing in, a, in an actual venue with a real yeah. Like, is, is the dynamic different because it's outside?
1: Couldn't be more different, absolutely. Okay. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily, I mean, why would you understand unless you'd like really have more experience, but mm-hmm. a comedy club has a lot of um, things that help facilitate the experience. So um, for instance, you know, often they're like in basements or in like smaller, like kind of condensed rooms, basically the worst rooms you could imagine for COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not great. Low ceilings is what you want because you, when you laugh, you want it to kind of echo and go back to the comedian. Okay. Getting that feedback from the audience to the comic is, is really important. It helps them kind of gauge how they're doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so everyone's generally pretty close together. There's obviously drinking, you know, drinking helps people just kind of chill out from their, Mm -hmm. their day job or whatever they came from on their date, whatever they're doing. And then the low ceilings and obviously, you know, the quiet contained audience, um, in the park, everything I just listed that kind of bullet point, you don't have any of those, maybe alcohol because New York was, you know, kind of cool about that this summer. Mm -hmm. That's really the only thing that is the same um, compared to the actual indoor comedy club experience. You literally, I've had some insane experiences this summer. I've had dogs run up to me while I was doing my set. (laughs) I've had Zumba classes start like 10 feet over from me. I've had uh, a homeless man run up and brush his hair at me. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> like it, it it goes on. Oh, I had a drunk girl come up and ask if she could sing a song. And I was like, maybe, <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> um, so you have so many distractions, which is definitely not ideal. You also have completely open air. So all the laughs can kind of just dissipate. And also, you know, a lot of folks are wearing masks, which amazing, definitely wear a mask, totally get it. Unfortunately, a little bit difficult to get laughs, like, you know, received from the by the comics.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: um and then obviously the other side of it is just the noise itself. So, you know, at first we were doing it without microphones and I was completely hoarse all the time from trying to yell my jokes. <laughs> and now it is um it has definitely gotten better um cuz we've been able to like take like little karaoke machines and do use those but um mm-hmm. just making sure everybody can hear you and that they're not distracted by the loud like I don't know Part, like barbecue that's going on over there with their music blaring. So um, just a ton of distractions, but it's been interesting for me as a young comedian because it's really made me double down and um, kind of figure out how to grab people's attention a lot faster and be more deliberate about making sure to hold that attention as well. I've been doing a lot of the hosting as well, where that's really your job is to kind of like, you know, round everybody up, and circle them at their attention towards you. yeah. Um, which is a skill that I think, you know, when you're in a, comedy club you might not necessarily get as strong at because you're you know working with
0: uh, you're in the ideal setting yeah and, exactly. and, and the vibe is built for you yeah i mean comedy is not running swim clinics but it's just all i really have to refer to because you do those as well and what you're talking about about establishing that vibe as an mc like I don't know what that mental muscle is that you have to flex, but it is a muscle you have to flex Where it's like, get in here. And you've it's really not had to has. flex. No, I mean, and you've had to flex and develop that muscle.
1: Absolutely. And I actually, that's a great point. Um, I definitely think doing swim clinics prepared me for not directly, but like helped some of those muscles that have prepared me for park comedy <laughs> where I'm like, yeah, at least there's no pool, like system buzzing in the background, whatever. <laughs> am I, am I not frozen? You know, like
0: okay. Yeah. And man, if you can be patient with children who are not listening to what you have to say and not like are,
1: openly not listening.
0: Yeah, and are freezing cold in a pool. I imagine adults who are there to support comedy, you're at least a little bit uh prepared to corral them and to get them on board with what you're trying to do, or at least it's definitely you, you have some background in it. Yeah.
1: It's definitely
0: so, cool. So we're going to get back to the comedy later because I want to work our way towards that. Uh, but before we do, uh, we know each other because we're swimmers and you have had an, you had an extremely successful career in swimming. Uh, you were a professional for three years outside of college, uh, much like myself. And I really just, I want to dig into that side of yourself before we go anywhere. So let's start when you were a kid. You grew up in Rhode Island. Yep and um, swam at bluefish swam and by the way Fish? speaking of bluefish uh before we go anywhere i was getting together a interview with elizabeth beisel next week and she said to say to you that she loves you she misses your cat password and can't wait to see the cat i'm mean, gonna need an explanation on that later uh, and I'll,
1: she, I'll have him come make an appearance so we got a, a kitten and, at
0: and the she,
1: beginning of quarantine yeah and, um beisel has actually been able to come and, and meet him since and he's yeah like, He's the light of my life. It goes password then Matthew.
0: <laughs> is the idea that people's pets are usually their password?
1: Yeah, I figured you'd get this right away because you're so good at Monday Punday. <laughs> and uh, but exactly like your your password is almost always your pet's name. Like that's one of the most common ones. So we're like, Well and it screw
0: (laughs) it i do i do feel like through monday punday i've gotten to know matt's uh turn of phrase skill a little bit even when he stumps me
1: exactly
0: she also wanted to make sure that i checked in that your 10 million plants that you've become a mother for are doing okay so how are your plants are they okay
1: bad news so this olive tree over here is dead
0: are you a a plant killer (laughs) now laura like just creeping in the background dude, it's a life form Um, and it died on your watch. Yeah,
1: that's a grow light. I really tried. I tried so hard. I got these grow lights off Amazon. I was like, what do you need? And I I think I just smothered it. So, but then this little guy over here, I have no idea what it's called, but it's thriving. It's living its best life. And then I have another little grow light frame here. Can't really see it, but there's a little cactus guy in there.
0: Wait, so that's not a window. That's not a teeny tiny window. Okay, I mean, I uh, it's, it's New York. Uh, I would expect a two-inch by three-inch window, I guess.
1: Yeah, this who knows? Yeah. So,
0: um, in this yeah. economy?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where do you live? No.
0: Um,
1: he, uh, it's a he. Is a little cactus that just sits in its little grow frame, and this is this is where I zoom from all day for work. <laughs>
0: Well a little bit, bit of a
1: dead uh, olive tree in the background. So the plant game has been stronger.
0: <laughs> well, we can we can report back to Beisel that even though there's been some casualties, the cat is fine and most of the plants are fine.
1: Perfect. And back to s-
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh let's go to swimming. So you grew up in Rhode Island swimming at um
1: Bluefish, baby.
0: Bluefish with um you were with at-
1: Beisel, um Kaya mm-hmm. Simmons, just uh it was a Kristen Connor, so it was a really, really strong team, and a um, all collegiate swimmers from, uh, around the country, wonderful, wonderful, with Chuck Batchelor and, um, mm-hmm. uh, Christy Batchelor, they're, um, very close to me still, I love them so much, um, but had a really interesting, good experience, um, Bluefish is a really intense club, yeah. and, like, the commitment to be on that team is
0: absolutely enormous, um, we did a lot of yardage, no yeah. getting around it, like, we did yardage. Right, so I came up on a team like NBAC yeah. where, you know, we would pump out Olympians every year and we were known for tough practices. And then I would hear, like, if I see Chuck at a national select camp or some sort of swim meet, he would relay back what you guys were doing at Bluefish and it would scare the, scare the Jesus out of me. And I was no slouch. So totally. You what guys, do
1: you-, you guys had some of those epic ones too, but, but Chuck, like it was like a point of pride for him, but yeah. We were like, okay, let's do it.
0: So what was your early relationship with swimming? What um, what what really sucked you into the sport at the beginning?
1: You know, I started so young. Like, I think that's an interesting thing. I definitely know people who started young later in life, but I do think there's a, a decent amount of folks. Maybe I would even argue over-representation of people who started like five, six years old. Mm-hmm. I started at five and I don't remember before swimming yeah you, i think you probably do right like couldn't tell you well,
0: you know you as since you're asking i started when i was 11 and that or eight or not nine ten years old but i didn't really get into it till i was 11 or 12 and that felt late right which is crazy yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry there's a fly no it's okay <laughs> the um but I, I, that is true like people like yourself are definitely the norm and not the exception where you just kind of showed up to swim practice one day when you were a little kid and never left.
1: Well, yeah, the reality was like, I had a ton of energy as a kid. My parents, I drove them crazy and they signed me up for swim practice. And I was, um, I was not necessarily good right out the gate. Like I got good pretty fast. Cause I was, I was a big kid. I was mm-hmm. very tall. I was very lanky, uh, a strong, was really strong. And, um, it, it tired me out. Like I had insomnia and I would actually sleep when I, Went to swim practice. So they were pretty stoked about that. They kept sending me. And um, they were great though. They weren't necessarily like pushy parents. My dad definitely loved my swimming and got super into it. Um, but their their motto, which I always thought I really appreciated, was that it was always my choice to swim. Mm -hmm. However, if I wanted to stop, I had to wait until the season ended. Mm -hmm. Like I could never quit in the middle of hard training or something like that. I couldn't be like, I don't want to swim anymore. Um, Because they wanted to make sure that, you know, if I truly wasn't enjoying it, that I could not have it in my life anymore. But that if I did, it wasn't that it was just like, you know, anything that you're working really hard, at is going to have pretty tough times. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make sure that I wasn't quitting, because it was just like hard those couple of weeks, or whatever it was. Um, So basically, it just kind of kept going season by season. And, you know, inevitably, I'd be like, oh, like practice is so tough. And I don't think I want to do this anymore. Every Christmas training period, mm-hmm. they're like, it's so funny, you want to quit like every Christmas. <laughs> You'd rather sit at home and like yeah. cookies or whatever. Um, but then I'd go to the championship meets and get all excited and be like, it was so fun to like, you know, see all my hard work pay off or, you know, at least see, you know, have the time with my friends and it was a really celebratory atmosphere and, you know, inevitably go and do another season of it. So it continued literally just continued to cycle for a while, <laughs> a year. Mm-hmm. I didn't swim for like 20 years. Just yeah. crazy. That's most, that's careers.
0: And you, and you rode those highs and lows every year mm-hmm. and probably were more adept at dealing with them as you got older and had more experience with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you start to like when you're young, it, you're, you're not mature enough at that point to really be able to understand, like, Oh, this is a temporary feeling of wanting to quit right now. You're just like my parents are jerks. Yeah. And then as you get older, you're like you you start to be able to conceptualize like time and things like that a lot more and understand like that the effort you're putting in there is going to mean something later on. And you know you you start to just get obviously just more mature
2: mm-hmm. with
1: your approach and um yeah. So I I and I, I really wanted to swim in college, um, which I was really lucky. Obviously, UT was such an amazing experience also with its challenges you know like we Mm -hmm. had a coaching change while i was there i had great seasons i had terrible seasons you know it's kind of the the whole mixed bag (laughs) injuries like everything like let's do it all um and but but ultimately came away from it like just really happy that i had that that full bodied experience like i'm describing a good wine
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. well when we're gonna to get to Texas um, to kind of establish the base of you getting to that level where you could be recruited by Texas. When did you f- first understand what was available to you? When when was your first moment of like, oh, that's what I am. Um, that's what I can do in this sport.
1: Yeah, well, you know, obviously USA Swimming and they've done a lot to kind of continue to establish this program. But at that point they had like the the junior team component um, I think they've been around for like 10 years or so at that point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I actually don't know when the junior team started, but, but either way, it was like a, a known thing. And then secondarily, um, like there was the, the zones camp. And the nice thing about swimming is it's very binary. Like you make a time or you don't mm-hmm. Did you hit the wall and clock stopped or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really became kind of like a little game. It was just like, here's what I go right now. Here is, um, the next level of competition. And I was really travel motivated. I loved to travel as a kid. And like, I was like living up here in Rhode Island. I was like, oh my gosh, Zones is in New Jersey this year. (laughs) Ooh. But it was fun because you get to go with your friends. I'm like, yeah on a free trip. Thanks, mom and dad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just staying in a hotel with your friends was like the epitome of existence at that time.
1: Totally. I was like, I can't. Now it's so funny to look back and just like how motivated I was for a weekend in Jersey. I was like, oh, buddy, we're gonna go to (laughs) Apple. What?
0: <laughs> oh, don't get me started on Applebee's. That, oh, yeah, the, uh, the, the boneless buffalo tenders definitely opened my world up to spicy food. So, 100%. shout out, a- shout out Applebee's. You shaped young swimmers' lives from a very young age.
1: <laughs> like, why was that such? Also, the other thing that like kills me is the fact that whenever we had meets, like we would drive up to Boston, you know, hour and a half, two hours or so. And a lot of our weekends would be in Boston at like MIT or Harvard or wherever at those big competitions big like state. They're not states like New England, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then every Sunday after the competition ended, we would drive home and I'd get Burger King. And (laughs) I was so laser focused (laughs) on getting Burger King.
0: (laughs) Were you in or out on chicken fries? Or was it something else you were looking forward to?
1: Excuse me. I was excited for a milkshake.
0: Yes. Uh, Okay. Okay.
1: like, Like, oh, like I was ready for it. And sometimes I right. see, I think they had ICs back then at some, I don't even remember.
0: They had a moment, they had a fling with ICs.
1: <clears throat> but I, uh, it was like, the, the motivators weren't like, glory or like, <laughs> I'm just like, i to go to Jersey and get Burger King.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, dude, the first time I made zones, I was hanging out, like I got to hang out with my friends. Like the first zone team I made for Maryland swimming, like the kid on that trip, his name's Kevin, who ended up becoming my best friend, was the best man at my wedding back in September. So like, you are going to these meets and hanging out with your friends. Like, it's unbelievable how much how strong of a motivator was. I'm exactly the same way. But we do have we do have to move on to the ambition side of things because you um, and by the way, we're going to find people are going to find a lot of parallels. We had a very parallel uh, swimming career, Laura and I basically from, you know, Big time USA swimming team, three junior teams, scholarship of Texas, et cetera, et cetera. What was okay. it about the junior team experience um that kind of opened your world up? Because obviously the travel, but there had been other other things about how it changed your lens and your perspective.
1: So my first junior team, um, I was I was I had an interesting, like again, just like you, got good pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I was like really tall growing up. So mm. That helped me. Like I qualified for US Open, I think at like 11 or something Mm -hmm. like that. So I was young going to some of these meets. Um, So so spiked up, but then I didn't qualify for the junior team for like another four years or so. That first one, I think it was four years, something like that, was to Hawaii. Hmm. And yo, if you think you're excited for Jersey, like that, I was just like, no way (laughs) blew my mind. So there was a couple of things that were really interesting about it. First of all, again, just going back to my tribe and true desire to like go eat food in cool places. Um, that was definitely checked. Um, but the second thing was, I think that was probably the first time I really considered how, like I was, I have been used to like winning.
0: It's hard to like talk about this without sounding egotistical you know this what is I mean? this is an ego accepting podcast we require okay. we require, yeah. like, we require you know, a lot of self-centric thinking in swimming so go for it
1: sure and especially at that point you know I, I like to think I was a good teammate and all that stuff but I was really I was very talented um, at that age I was lucky to have um, parents that had the resources to like you know take me to camps I got to do some camps which was really cool. I also got to um, you know train at really strong teams. So as a result, I was pretty fast and I, I was very used to like winning, um, most of the competitions and like, especially the new England area my age group and stuff like that. I was good. Um, so I made this junior team and it was crazy because it, it, they kind of rocked my world. Like I wasn't good Mm -hmm. there. I went for one. I think I qualified for one. I maybe had the hundred breast as well, but I don't think I qualified in the hunt. I qualified for the 200 breast. Mm-hmm. I think I got to swim the hundred breast as well, but it wasn't necessarily what I qualified in. I went to the Olympic training center beforehand. Cause it was back when they had like the, you know, everyone goes and like the camps the camp beforehand to kind of get everyone riled up and excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the entire time just being like, well, this is absolutely incredible. And um, it kind of was my first taste at like true and I, I, imposter syndrome isn't really the right word. Cause it wasn't ex- like me feeling like not necessarily fast enough was, was mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I, I didn't score a ton of points on that junior team or anything like that. I kind of just like squeaked my way in. And then, um, uh, this was also the year where Australia like brought like all their 18 year olds and the U S still had the rule. You had to be like under 16 or something.
0: Oh, that's whack.
1: Yeah. There was like some strange an add on on top but like we were just getting smoked <laughs> it was like older kids <laughs> I was <just> like wow ah! <laughs> so i just remember i was representing the us had the united states cap and that was such a big deal to me i thought that was like the coolest of the cool things that could happen mm. and um but then i was like pretty disappointed i mean i had a, a fantastic time don't get me wrong i ate like fruit tarts like every single day so i was like cheese and having the best time in hawaii But I was disappointed with how I performed. And I think that was one of the first times that I really got woken up to the fact that like of international competition and, um, how you can like little fish in a big pond kind of deal. Like usually I was like the big fish in a little pond, New England swimming's not that big. You know what I mean? And the national experiences aren't that frequent, but to really just get my, my butt handed to me on the grand state or in the, the big stage was, um was kind of humbling and it was also really motivating because I was like, well, shoot, I want to come back and like do better Mm -hmm. at this next one. Um, And I did, I got an opportunity to go to multiple other competitions like that. Um, And I think that really helped me. It was funny, like I I used to kind of screw around and practice sometime, like probably prior to that. Like I was just like, you know, I was a, a rambunctious kid. I would blow bubble rings, I'd run all over the place. And I think that really helped me kind of realize like I wanted to Uh, really max out my potential. That was always the big thing. Just Mm -hmm. know that I had done everything I could to be good.
0: And how did, how did your self procession change by the time you got to the World Youth Games in 2008 and the uh, Junior Pin Packs in 2009, the two junior teams that, that we were at together? Um, You had to get to the World Youth Games by being the fastest 18-under at the Olympic trials. So you were, you made it in two events, correct?
1: 100 and 200 breasts. I,
0: yeah.
1: Everything is always breaststroke here. <laughs> well, so
0: that, yeah, of course. And, um, but how did, how did it change? Cause by the time I saw you, you were fully formed in a veteran and winning events, winning gold medals. Yeah. Um,
1: I was a completely different athlete by that point. And what, I,
0: what so changed, changed in, in the interim?
1: That's so funny. Like the difference between those two, I, I guess it was probably, four or five year difference or some, something like that. You can fact check me, I don't know. But point being like a, about a quad, you know, base around of difference. And obviously I grew a lot and that that's gonna help, you know, and there's nothing you get around being an age group or you just get taller. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think like I, I started to, I wanted to win on a national and an international level as well. And I think I started taking myself more seriously as an athlete and not just being like, I'm going to go to Rhode Island States and like, you know, win the event against the 20 other people that are here, not to, Mm -hmm. you know, downplay that at all. But again, it was like, you're competing and training with some of the best club, you know, best athletes in the, in the world. And also I think like being with people like Beisel, like that girl really opened my eyes to the extent of capabilities. Like, you know, you don't have to be from Baltimore to make an Olympic team. You can go, you know, and, if you have a lane you have a shot that kind of deal
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so by 2008 um chuck had his grand plan for us going into that olympic trials and yeah we trained so hard preparing for that um and we finally tapered and i dropped like three or four seconds or something crazy going into that meet which qualified me for the youth championships which i think i got a silver medal mm-hmm. At um and um yeah, it was cool. Cause I was really able to just see all the hard work that I put together over a really long time there and all that motivation that had kind of been brewing from not doing so well at, you know, earlier competitions where I was excited to, where I wanted to do well, um, had that all kind of come together, in, you know, the perfect storm. That was still probably one of my best like overall seasons in terms of like just teeing up taper and just like, you know, swinging it out of the park. Like and
0: then everything just click right into place. And then getting the bonus meet where the taper is like the right. super taper at that point. Yeah. Totally. And then I, I went love from
1: there to um, Florida zones or something in like Sarasota. I, I was oh man. Still, so I was so tired by that point, but I was still <laughs> like, I was in like super, super taper mode. So I was dying a little bit at the end of the 200, but I like did a bunch of off events mm-hmm. and just like smoked all my old times. It was great. Those seasons are just so, you know, when you're just going best times and you're like, huh this is easy. Like, why don't I just go best times all the time?
0: Yeah. So you go to Texas. What were your goals that you had in mind coming out of 2008 trials and going into your recruiting process that shaded where you wanted to go to school and why, why did Texas come to the fore as the place that you felt like was right for you?
1: Yeah. Um, I was always really academic. Um, growing up. So that was probably, and that's all. Whenever people ask me for advice in terms of recruiting, Mm -hmm. I really, 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 really encourage people to take swimming as much out of the equation initially as Mm -hmm. possible. The wonderful thing is there are tons of programs that are really, really strong swimming-wise at universities that are extremely competitive academically. So, So first and foremost, I would say find the best fit for you academically and um, try to find that and that's what I did with Texas at that point especially I was then looking at the chemical engineering program because I was like oh I'll totally work in a lab for the rest of my life which it goes to show how much you learn about yourself
2: <laughs> yeah
1: like that would not have been a good thing. yeah <laughs> I like what I do now I'm way more but point being um, I definitely was looking academically at some of these schools and I was like okay I'm not you need to be able to really feel excited about what you're doing there that's number one secondarily obviously um make sure that the culture of the school as a f- as a whole fits with what you want to do i think texas is like the fact that it's um just such a business oriented city um you know there's so many startups it was kind of it was also interesting because it was a while ago where it was like right at the peak of all that potential of like all those big tech companies were coming mm. in it was just like that beautiful mesh of there's like really liberal amazing art scene combining with the like high growth power of tech startups and things like that. So I loved that energy that that city had mm. So making sure the city fits. And then of course, obviously the swimming, you know, being, it's the thing that everyone kind of gravitates towards in terms of making their decisions. Cause it's such a big part of your life and it's such a big part of your day to day. Um, I loved the culture of Texas swimming as a whole. I thought it was absolutely what I wanted to be a part of. I love the fact that it had such a rich history that I could contribute to, or like strive to contribute to. Um, and just, um, the way it took its academics and you know athletics so seriously, and it was just like that that fandom around the whole thing I thought was wonderful. Um, other side of it is I love the team. Um, it's kind of funny looking back. I I can kind of again I know more about myself to understand why this was such a big appeal. But um, there's a lot of different types of swimmers. There's some who are really you know bookish and academic. There are some who are a little bit more, like, you know. I don't want to say basic but just you know they're not necessarily going to be like the the texas team the women especially in that year that component was wild they were so fun and i'm not saying like partying fun necessarily
0: but diversity of personality right
1: yeah like like at practice just like like wackadoos the whole time like cracking jokes and like it was fun it was just a fun hang with everyone and we really enjoyed um you know each other, like each other's personalities. And I'm still really close with a lot of the girls on the team um, because I felt like they helped me. Like, I tend to be a fairly serious person or at least growing up, I was extremely like, you know, focused and driven. And it helped me kind of explore that like sillier side of myself, which ironically now, you know is a huge part of what I do. Um,
0: It's interesting that the things that we develop later in life, we tend to have like such a strong relationship with them for Mm -hmm. some reason. I, there's things in my own life, but we're gonna stay focused on you. Um, so you get to Texas, and you develop these super close friendships, but um, the, the culture of a team is different from the relationships you have outside yeah. the pool. So how did you see a team culture at a team like Texas um, evolve in your time there, all the way through a coaching change and into your senior year?
1: Yeah, it was weird, because I went to Texas, obviously, as a freshman, and I was very much like, once again, back into that little, like, I was fast, and I had, um, you know, some good times, and I was anticipated to make NCAAs and, you know, contribute, but I was by no means, like, the the fastest on the team, by Mm any means, and also, you know, so I kind of went back down to, like, you know, you're, as a senior in high school at your club team, you're in, like, kind of a power position, and you kind of go back. You have to, like, resort, and you have to reestablish yourself you know, socially and obviously like like physically for lack of a better word, like how you fit into the team and the team dynamics. Um, Then we had the added complications of uh, uh, a coaching change in our junior year. So I think it was really interesting because it's, I I found myself in more of a leadership kind of position slowly Mm. but surely. And like, I certainly was not in one my, my freshman year. I feel like my freshman year, I was just like a chicken with my head cut off. Just like, I got sick early on, unfortunately, which was sad, Uh, still ended up doing pretty decent that year. Um, And um, yeah, so then slowly kind of came to terms with like maturing as my as an athlete, and also as a teammate and like becoming more and more involved in like the team component of it and trying to make my, my friends be good versions of themselves. And that was something I really enjoyed about the collegiate experience was like, learning how to, like, I was always friends with everyone at like we worked really well as a unit in the club team, but there's Mm -hmm. always swimming individually. So you don't really, you care, you want them to do well, but your, your desire for them to do well is a little bit less than when you're on the collegiate team.
0: And there's a safety net. You can go home to your parents. If you're having a bad day with your teammates in college, Ah, you're going home to your teammates after you have a bad day with your teammates. So you got to manage it more
1: actually that's a really good point. Yeah, the, you can't escape really. And especially in the freshman sophomore years where you're like, well, we're in dorms. Yeah. Where am I gonna go? Yeah. <laughs> the cafeteria, Adobe, the like where am I going? Um, so so yeah, definitely learning how to how to work well with others um, mm-hmm. was a big part.
0: So this is a a kind of a longer question, but it's it's to kind of set up a specific answer. So I was talking to Madison Cox, and she was talking about how you kind of set the template for her when she was a freshman, uh, when you were a pro, and we'll get to your time as a pro. The question I have is, who, who was a mentor to you? And if there was no specific person, what did you learn um, from the people that were older than you on the swim team that helped you pull out a side of yourself and you became a leader? Because for people who don't know, you were already a leader at that point. You were um, as my sister is employing me and she says, hello, you're one of the people you recruited, Jordan Serhoff. Um, you were her junior team rep at her zone camp. So you were already taking these leadership opportunities when you were in high school. So how did you take what you learned about yourself in high school and add a template to it, um, from the older people around you at Texas? And if there were any specific people that helped you with that?
1: Yeah, that is a, an interesting one. So I would say it was a combination of a lot of people. Again, I really loved What's cool about Texas is that there is such a talented and involved alumni group, mm. um, like of, especially on the men's side, there were a lot of swimmers who, who stuck around after, you know, their collegiate career and trained professionally and continued to be involved. Like, even if it was just as much as coming back and teaching the Texas swim camp. So I think that really, um, I thought that was amazing. Like I always I was really impressed by just how they were able to come and like almost these like wise, like you know, there's people coming back with their lessons that they would tell to, to yeah. everybody, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but almost what the like, other thing- Almost these
0: like, shamans, right? Like,
1: shamans, yeah. But like, also just how larger, like how much um, I, as a young athlete, like looked up to them, that was something that I always like really, I never anticipated necessarily that I'd be in that position to an extent, but I was always like, I would want to make sure that I'm like the impact they had on me is something I really acutely remembered. Mm-hmm. A, that's probably a good way to put it. Um, meaning that like some little offhand remark or really anything that you do, anything you do in a leadership position is gonna have a magnifying glass put to it. My, we definitely see that with like leaders in companies, leaders in countries, like all that sort of stuff. Like what you say and what you do matters. Um, so you, you have to make sure that the impact that you're, you have to have high emotional intelligence and make sure the impact that you're having on other people is what you want, Mm -hmm. what you think will be good for them. And also what you want to be portraying and what you want your, your impact on others to be. Um, I was like a big nerd for like all the psychology stuff. I was really big on self-talk and like being confident with, um, you know, just how you speak to yourself and how you what you think you can do is going to very much define the limits that you're actually just de- developing for one for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was, um, I knew a lot about that. I had varying success with that. I think, uh, <laughs> um, there were certainly years I was better at it than others, mm-hmm. but it was definitely something that I wanted to bring into my collegiate experience or especially into the team dynamics, because I think one of the things like the Texas men's team is really, really good at this. Um, you guys believe that you're hot shit? Sorry, but I mean, because you are, but like, why are you like, I mean, you can look at all like the people coming in and they're not necessarily, obviously Eddie's an incredible coach and the legacy and all that stuff. And they recruit people who have a lot of physical talent, mm-hmm. but I'm a hundred percent convinced that the mental culture, which is something that's extremely difficult to define, it's really defined by the people who kind of hold that to be true is what enables people to go with those crazy records or, or really push themselves to, you know, capabilities that they shouldn't technically be able to do
2: mm-hmm. or like,
1: I mean, there's there's so many examples of folks who've just gone times where you're like, that guy? Awesome. <laughs> like, um, They're all of a sudden winning NCAA championships and things like that, so, or going to Olympic teams, which is really cool. So I think that is a long way of saying that I wanted to be a leader that would um, help others be their best version of themselves. And also at the same time, you know, make myself kind of what I would want to see in a leader. Mm-hmm. So trying to, to do that as much as possible. And I think there are countless examples. I was really lucky to have a lot of different people who exemplify different factors of it. Like I always loved, this is, you know I'll give this as an example because I don't think there's someone who necessarily gets this a lot is Katie Hamilton. Hmm. you remember Katie?
0: Katie Trevino awesome. and I. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so what I loved about Katie is that girl worked harder than anyone on the damn team. She worked so hard and she was the first person to make a joke all the time. She had the brightest attitude and was so funny. And you loved being at practice with Katie. You loved it. It was a fun experience. It didn't matter if you were doing 2200s fly, who cares? You guys are like, you know, screwing around and like, it's a good experience. And I think that that was something that was a huge, um, that's that's like you have to do the work. The work's not going anywhere, but the attitude that you bring to that work is so impactful. Um, and there was people like Katie, like growing up or like going through those earlier years that really showed me, you know, that impact. Um, there's so many others. I mean, you, I, I could go through the list of like everyone, but
0: <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll you, be
1: scared I miss someone. So
0: <laughs> we'll we'll go with Katie. Shout out Katie Trevino. Um, yeah. On to the swimming. And I want to focus on one specific moment because I think it tells—I think it tells the story of everything. And again, back to the parallel, you and me almost had a, a flip of each other with our collegiate careers, where um, I got a NCA championship, literally my very first swim as a freshman at my first NCAs. Uh, yeah, but then swing it back around. After a long and very successful and productive career for the University of Texas you won an nca championship in your very last swim right so i guess using that swim the lead up to that swim as a backdrop what was what was that senior year like for you and what was it like to culminate with that with that swim um especially with a potential professional career looming over the horizon
1: oh man that storm was so interesting because i really do feel like it was the perfect storm of so many different things in my life like
2: mm.
1: i i wasn't having a good meet that meet um i had a great big 12s that year i i had done really well i was going in seated first in um um the event like i, I think it was first or second but point being i was like i think i was considered the favorite
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there was a decent amount of pressure i hadn't i had gotten in the top like couple in the last couple of years um, so I'd always definitely been a contender, but I had never actually just clinched the win in the 200 breaststroke, and um, so there's a weird amount of pressure on it. Mm-hmm. And then um, I I got my my confidence shaken early in the meet because I didn't do as well as I wanted in some other some other events, and I barely qualified for finals for the 200 breaststroke. You won from an end lane, right? I won from the end lane. I was I qualified eighth, and okay. then I had so obviously I went in and I was like oh my god this is not (laughs) ideal not where you want to be yeah and um I always tell this story at camps because I think this is so it kind of goes to show like how much that culture really helped me through this but I would not have won if it hadn't been for my teammates that day there's no way I know that for a fact they were incredible like they lined up along the side of the lane they were going like this is just a they were amazing throughout the day, but that exact moment, like it was this we had those white jumpsuit or sweatsuits. Yeah, that. those Very, were clean,
0: those were clean outfits that they year, yeah. They were
1: pretty sweet. They had like the burnt orange trim, but like point being you could see them a mile away. And it was yeah. like 15 women wearing these full sweatsuits, all like burnt orange and white. So it was mm-hmm. pretty obvious, like a wall of that right along my lane. Again, on the outside lane, not ideal, but kind of cool because <laughs> they're right there. Yeah. Um, they all had a front row seat. And um, they're just going crazy. And they've been like surrounding me and supporting me. They knew I was super nervous. They knew I wanted to do well. And um, they kind of showed like, gave a lot of the love back to me that I had been, um, you know, I at least tried to pour into the team over the years. So it felt very like kind of like full circle with everything. Like I was like all the effort that I'd given into like being a strong, or at least trying to be a strong leader for for the group was, you know, given back to me. And as a result, I was able to win from the outside lane. It was a, it was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Like they really helped me, um, find that like extra little bit of strength that I needed to erase the, the bad, you know, juju of the meat and have a good, clean swim and, and win it.
0: You were able to draw positive energy from, from the collective around you.
1: Exactly. And that is, uh, the full, like, you know, what you, what you want. That's the ultimate thing. You want the culture of the team to be able to support.
0: What do you remember about the swim itself either? And a lot of people black out during races, so it's okay if yeah. you don't remember much, but what do you remember about both swimming it and, and touching the wall and seeing that you got the W?
1: Um, I remember just being extremely, well, first of all, I remember like during the swim itself, I knew I was doing well. Cause the, are you, like it's breaststroke, your head's out of the water a decent yeah. amount. And in the end lane, like this is a college pool. So it's not like one of those, you know, clear deck or anything like that. Like they yeah. were. They were right there. Like they were in my face. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh hell yeah. Like, so it's certainly a motivator as you're actually going itself. Um, I also knew I was at least gonna like I have a bad habit of taking quick looks when I was doing my pullouts. So I knew I was at least up in the top. I didn't know obviously if I was gonna like, you know, get it at the very end there. Um and then when I finished, like they immediately, the girls like all ran over and literally pulled me out of the water. And it was really cool. It was a very much a team celebration moment. Um, so it was just really happy, good times. Mm-hmm. It was so fun. Like,
0: what, what, what emotions were you feeling when you touched?
1: Joy, and then um, a little bit of relief, like kind of like monkey off my back. Like I've been something I've been trying to do for so long to finally achieve it. You're like, you know, awesome. Like, finally, Mm -hmm. I've been able to do that. And then like, um, gratitude and happiness for to be able to share it with like an awesome, you know, all those people like right away.
0: Mm -hmm. So you touched that wall. And not only did you become an NCAA champion, which is something that now, as as I have found out, you can put on a LinkedIn profile and sell fitter, faster swim camps with forever. (laughs) Um, And it's also always a nice conversation piece at uh, business interviews. But when you touched that wall, your collegiate career was also over and you became a professional swimmer. Did, yeah, you, that
1: was, did you know? Did you know? I didn't really think about that right away, but I was just like, sure, it was like I'm, a beautiful bow on like the college experience, which was yeah. felt like a great movie, full of drama, full of fun, like ups and downs. And like, it was, it felt like a movie ending, yeah. which I was lucky. Like, you know, I know a lot of people who didn't necessarily have that glorious moment at the very end of their swimming you know, chapter of what whatever mm-hmm. point it might have been. And um, you know, everyone has a different story. So I w- I felt very blessed to be able to like have an exciting piece there to kind of close out that chapter. It's definitely something I was lucky. Oh.
0: Oh hello, uh oh, password.
1: I got a surprise.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hello, password. How's it going? Hello. This is a this is a pro corner first. Um never had any pets. He's a homie. Would you say that? uh, Would you say that password is a professional pet?
1: (laughs) He definitely is. Uh, Follow him. Password the cat. Um, I am trying to just be his stage mom. That's actually my (laughs) my number one goal. But um, you know, I guess I'll just like do stuff as well in the meantime.
0: Well, he's definitely got
1: freaking cheesing. He's
0: definitely got the juice. He'll be a star in this business.
1: (laughs) He's an angel. Okay, sorry, I'll put him down.
0: It's okay. Um, My co-producer Boomy the Woodle is upstairs, but he he doesn't often come down here. He'll just whine at the door until I come back up. Adorable. So you turned pro. Did you always know you were going to be a pro or was that something that was hanging in the balance throughout your senior year? Because I think the coaching change that happened also has to be taken into account here.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, so let's go back and like do the math. So junior year, we had a fairly disappointing NCAA, hence the the coaching change shortly thereafter. And that summer was Olympic Trials of 2012. Mm-hmm. That's was a long time ago now. Yeah. And I had weirdly good that summer. Like we got the new coach, Carol Capitani, who I love, she's my fave. Hey, Carol. And um, she um, she was wonderful, and went to the the trials, and I I got fourth, and I was like. <sighs> went into my senior year, had some ups and downs, obviously, but, um, was still performing well and ended up winning the NCAA championships. And then it's like, well, shoot, like, you know, I'm, I'm having a pretty decent streak here. We've had a year now with the new coach and I'm, I'm doing, you know, well enough that at least, you know, I have a, I have a legitimate shot of making the team. Do I want to give this three more years? Do I want to give it a run? Um, and so basically what I settled on is I kind of took it season by season. Mm. My plan was to go through trials, but obviously like I, I, worked at the same time. I was trying to, to make sure that I could, it's fine. He's just going to hang him back.
0: He's chilling. He's chilling. It's all good.
1: <laughs> I was trying to make sure that I, um, kind of started building up some work experience at least. Um, but then I was, um, like, you know, trained through the summer, got to go to some cool meets there. Um, just kept going from there and did the, the professionals, I. I don't even want to say circuit because it's like such a every it's so weird it's such a make it what make what you want of it experience Mm -hmm. you know what I mean which I think is um after going from collegiate swimming which is so regimented and like dual meet dual meet study hall you know big 12 conference championships then NCAA championships and then you have summer break and then you come back like everything is really drawn out for you you don't really have a say yeah (laughs) collegiate like you do very much, or Mm -hmm. actually, I'm sorry, um, professional, like what meets makes sense for you? What training schedule makes sense for you? You're getting older. Do you need to be doing the same, like, um, um, yardage or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you have like a lot more, um, agency over what you're doing as an athlete. And, um, and it can be really challenging. It certainly was for me. Um, and again, I had the same thing. I had some, some ups and I had some downs and, The cool part is you get to start to travel to cooler places. Once again, coming back to my first love, going cool places.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And we locked in one more world university games team in uh, Kazan, Russia in 2013. Uh, That was the summer I became pro too. I wonder if, I mean, did this just as a sidebar, did this help you decide at all that literally we qualified for that meet the year before at that U.S. Open coming out of trials, I was like, "Well, I might as well go to Russia." <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. yeah. I mean, it was—I mean, literally just like having a really strong long course season as my last long course season. I was like, "Well, I may as well give it." Like, what at that point is like four months or something?
2: Mm-hmm. Not
1: exactly like I've had anything else to do besides graduate. Like, just keep going, you know. And then like ride it out, and um, and then that season was fun. That was a good year. I'm I'm trying to remember exactly what happened that season. I don't think it was a qualifier for anything. Oh, I think I made the world cups or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to, I actually want to dig into that experience. And you mentioned that it's such a make it up as you go thing. That's literally why I started this podcast is when I was a pro, I never, I didn't know what that meant. Like I am someone who I have to work really hard to understand a structure and I'm much better when it's given to me. So being a pro in swimming from the 2013 2016 time period where there's no ISL, where fitter faster is still just getting its feet under itself, so there's not a ton of ways to make money off of your likeness as a pro swimmer.
1: Right.
0: What social
1: media was new? Are you kidding? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Like, did you? If someone asked, would you say you were a pro swimmer? And did you? And did you feel that word as you were saying it?
1: Uh, what do you mean? When someone when someone asked, at the point. Yeah, I mean, okay. what the it's, heck else was I, you know?
0: The question has to be asked because it was a nebulous concept in swimming at the time. I, uh,
1: I mean, I would say like, you know, you make my, like what do you identify yourself as a swimmer? Uh, i not a collegiate swimmer. I, I am in earning, you know, the bulk of my income from this. So there we go. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Well, let's dig into that now. Um, we don't have to dig into exact specific numbers, but how did you pie chart out your income as as a, as a professional swimmer from year to year uh, when you were on your own trying to make it as a swimmer trying to be a professional athlete and support yourself
1: it's one of those things that i i feel like every 4 years when the olympics airs there's like one like weird segment before like the like the behind the scenes kind of thing and they talk about like the training and like the the trying to scrape together money And that's really the only visibility that the public ever has into the insane, or there's like one, like, you know, 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 sports illustrated article about like how, how people try to make it all work. First of all, there's very little money in swimming, unless you are at the very, very top of the game, you are going to be making, you know, an average clerical kind of like you're. You're not crushing it you could do decently depending on the year but the reality is also that like there's no guarantees whatsoever mm-hmm. it's not like i'm going to be professional and now yeah. that means for the next three years i get fifty thousand dollars a year whatever it may be yeah. every single year is you have to scrape it all together and you often have no visibility into what your income is going to look like throughout the year because you might get booked for a clinic um, two months ahead or a month and a half ahead or whatever it is so it's very much it's funny because now with comedy um it's very similar it's like a make it up as you go kind of model um which has high i mean it has much higher potential but i'm just like oh this is nothing like there's there's way more opportunities to make people laugh than there is opportunities to swim for money (laughs) who
0: cares? yeah you know who you know, who did not want to go to a swim meet to watch 2014 me who was trying to make money from people watching swimming?
1: <laughs> it's a small market. It really yeah.
0: Is. Yeah. Um, of course. I
1: think right now though, obviously like the, uh, again, the big, the really big factor is social media was like really new. I got my first, Insta- I started Instagram, I think like my last year of college, junior mm-hmm. year or so. that's like when it came out. Um, and now they're obviously able to do a whole slew of additional things like with social media stuff. And, you know, there's some more opportunities that have arisen from that ISL and things like that. Um, but in terms of pie charting it out, like you're kind of saying, I wish there was as much like rhyme or reason to it as there really was like, there were a few times that I made stipend and that was amazing to be able to actually have support for the season from, so what I think you probably covered this at some point, but like a certain world ranking USA swimming will actually pitch in and Um, you know, pay you a couple, depending on how, a certain X amount of money per month um, to assist with like expenses. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there's prize money and things like that, but it's all very much not guaranteed. And you you never know what you're going to get kind of deal. So you you stay on a budget, try to save. And the sad reality is a lot of the times people just have parental support, not the sad reality. I think it's awesome to have parental, you know, support,
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: but it's, whenever that comes into play it's just like you know the haves and the have-nots kind of situation sure. that's a whole other conversation i'm going to just shelve that right now but that's kind of the sure <laughs> what i'm um mm-hmm. to. so i and work as well so i i um definitely you know worked outside i had a number of different jobs as you may remember mm-hmm. um, and um that helped a lot too i mean
0: i imagine the the big part that I wanna zero in on that was a big help was the arena deal. So mm-hmm. what, how did that come through and what do you remember about, cause I imagine that A, that made up a big portion of your income, but it also B was very, it, it buttressed kind of your your standing in the swimming community as a visible pro athlete.
1: Yeah, um, it's so funny cause those things are always like, very strange circumstances that all come together. I mean, mm-hmm. the arena deal, I, I got signed by arena, which was wonderful. Um, I really liked their suits. I was approached by, um, them and tear. Um, and I, I love Tier as well. I think the, I love the people there. Um, but I just preferred racing in the arena suits at that point, who knows what they're doing with the suits. They're probably like got little fins on them now or something crazy. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, that was definitely you know, what I wanted to race in. And, you know, I was also of the mindset that like, I wanted to do what was going to make me fastest in the water. I wasn't like, you know, whatever I needed to do to, to just make sure I felt good when I was actually racing. Um, I was kind of putting all like longer term, you know, tier has more visibility outside of the swimming world is the reality. Like, um, they do triath, they're way more known brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to be good at swimming so i like went with a little bit more niche of a group um which i'm still so happy i did because i was really just focusing in on that and then i was like okay once i'm done swimming i can kind of expand and you know do other things if needed right um so so to kind of go into your your story um i also think like the other side of it is there's not a ton of female athletes who go pro Hmm. and i don't think this is really brought up to USA Swimming enough, Um, but like men are much more likely to take the risks of, you know, going and going into a, you know, training for competitions and stuff like that and working through those years afterwards. I remember it was like eight or something that year of of women who were swimming as post-collegiate athletes. Hmm. There is the reality that women do, you know, get fast in, you know, earlier as well. Like the, just the fastness, curve fastest curve so technical uh, whatever
0: but, yeah we're going to send that into yeah. the uh the, the usoc to vet our terminology the fastness curve
1: <laughs> exactly
0: we'll call yeah. it yeah. the patent. sogar fat yeah patent the sogar fastness curve perfect lock it in
1: but the point being women obviously there's um you get fast earlier and you just women grow faster than men. Mm-hmm. So there's partially that, um, but there's not a ton of women that go past um, collegiate swimming. So I think that that just kind of opened up the opportunities a little bit more for sponsorships as well. Um, Cause I was like, all right, well, it's me and eight other girls. like,
0: <laughs> You might as well. Yeah, you might yeah. as well be one of them that gets it. Yeah. Um, Were you, this is going to lead into comedy early and I'm, I'm not, I don't necessarily want to dig too much into it Um, with how you use this today but were you aware of your brand then like with the arena thing a big part of what you did for them you were modeling the suits and you were very you were very visible on on their literature and on what they were promoting so were you aware of your visibility and what laura sogar meant as a brand in the public space
1: yes um i would say like love like i was aware of it i wasn't as consciously aware of it necessarily Um, and what I mean by that is like, you definitely go through some media training, like various USA swimming camps would have components of that. And, you know, they're, they basically boil down to like, Hey, watch it. You know?
0: yeah. Don't be an ass. Yeah. That
1: could really be like the summary of all eh, Stop. Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> And uh, the collegiate groups obviously do a lot of that as well. So that's just kind of teaching you, um, which is, you know, it's nice to have gone th- through that, like, especially now as a you know, where everyone's hyper aware of being polit- politically correct, not the right word, but just like, let's just call it wholesome online. Um, you know, there's cancel culture and all those types of, types of things. Uh, that's even going too far. But the other thing is like what you represent. And I, I had a kind of a sense of that. I don't think I necessarily was specifically branding myself as one thing versus another. Once again, social media is like the primary way people do that. Yeah, And they're it was new. It was freaking new. Like, you know, I would do stupid Twitter jokes on swimming, which had, you know, people were always like, oh, well, you're funny on Twitter for, you know, the swim jokes that you did. Like, sure. That's, that's a, that's good for like a hundred people or whatever, you know, that would yeah. get those kind of things. Yeah. And I, I post my practice pictures. I was tended to do sillier stuff, um, online. And, um, and that was kind of the extent of it. Um, uh, I think the, a, capabilities there have really evolved because they've become such, you know, there's the videos and there's the the interviews and in the interviews, I was always just myself, which I tried to be like, kind of, um, open and honest, but, um, you
0: know, you were a pure version not, of yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But like not sullen or just like always like optimistic and like, kind mm. of like friendly, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of the way I could kind of go about it. Yeah. So that was, I guess, my brand though, that's obviously just like kind of vague things I just wanted to be, you know? Um, I think it's cool nowadays that people like the the younger athletes, people it's so crazy, like seeing people like Simone or like Olivia, um, just the way that they've been able to kind of evolve in their um, collegiate or, you know, go past the collegiate career and start to like have more and more like clearly defined like who they are as swimmers and who they represent as athletes and the, the products and the companies especially now that I work at a company, I can understand how difficult it is to figure out your branding for your product and how to match that with a human being is is difficult. So um, point being, I was not overly aware. I just tried to be a good person and um, had my natural personality shine through as much as possible which I guess inherently gave me a, a light version of a brand, but not nearly as sophisticated as I think that people are getting today.
0: Mm-hmm. And my- it's, it was the beginning, but it hasn't developed. It hadn't developed to the point where it's something you utilize today as an entertainer,
1: way more aware of it today and still struggling. Cause I'm trying to figure out like, we all are like, who am I, you know, like,
0: <laughs> wow. I guess we're getting deep here, huh? Oh,
1: Oh, no, but like, I mean, that's, that is actually something that especially in the first couple of years of your your comedy, like you figure out like, what do you, what's your, what's your vibe? Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly like high energy. That's definitely my vibe. um, But that's not like enough of a thing. So like what, I'm a swimmer. I'm someone who was a professional athlete, um, but not a highly paid one. That's kind of funny. Like, you know, like, Mm -hmm. just kind of trying to really take a step back. It's almost like looking at yourself, like from a, a third person just being like, if I had to describe Laura, like, what would I describe her as?
0: Yeah. Like, like what's, what's your deal? Like, yeah. <laughs> what's your deal, man?
1: <laughs> what's up? <laughs> what is your deal? Like when someone leaves the show, like, will they be like, will they, cause that's the thing that I think a lot of really, again, we're, we're kind of digging into the comedian component, but a lot of really good joke writers forget the branding component in Mm. my personal uneducated opinion on this as like I'm going to give you my confident opinions
0: yeah (laughs) well you mean the vessel that the joke is coming from is just as important as the joke itself right like what you are carrying into the room with you
1: if you are trying to be a writer in a writer's room then it is not okay because then you can just get a job writing for shows or whatever it is and just can you make good joke yes no
2: like Mm -hmm.
1: Um, can you do the structure if you want to be on freaking tv you better people better like you if you go and think of any of the comics that you know and love you have a vibe for them you know mm-hmm. what they are like who they are as people you can understand more who they are
0: that you can count on them you can count on what you're going to get from them right
1: you what know, you know what you're going to get because you feel like you know them as beyond like oh like a lot of my best or my favorite comedians, I don't necessarily even have like an index of all their my favorite jokes of theirs. Like, I just know that I like them. I like their performance.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. also
1: memory
0: it, for that kind of stuff so. no uh, likewise someone will say oh what's your you know what's your favorite bill burr joke and instead of saying oh the one where we need a plague which is probably not the best one to say right now but <laughs> i guess you all just heard it uh, um <laughs> i would say well you know i just dig his vibe he's the angry guy
1: <laughs> exactly exactly and exactly. i know
0: when i roll up to roll up when i pull up netflix and watch a bill burr show I know what I'm going to get from it. He's going to be angry, but he is also going to drop the veil and be real and also self-deprecating about it. Like, I know I'm going to get that together. It's a nice, exactly. it's, it's like knowing you're going to get a bowl of oatmeal in the morning. You know, it's a great thing that it may be someone like me who loves oatmeal, but um, <laughs> um,
1: yeah, no, but you're exactly right. And like, you know, who Bill Burr is, you know, like kind of what he you know, what, you know, what his deal is. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have to figure out, especially in those first couple of years of comedy is like, okay, yeah, you can make people laugh and you can write jokes, but like, are they gonna remember you when you go home? Yeah. And like, are they gonna be like, hey, you should go look at Austin Sirhoff's stuff? His, he's like XYZ, you know? Mm-hmm. So, which has been really interesting and very like self-reflective. I'm like, what is my, what is my deal?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start, let's let's take a step back and go to when you started developing your deal. Um, you were taking improv classes all the way back to college and consistently sticking with them as you were training as a pro in Austin, as you also were holding a job. what what, what inspires you to go in the first place? Let's start with the beginning of your comedy career.
1: Yeah, I um, get bored easy. Mm. So I have to have a lot of stuff going around like going on around me. I really thrive in chaotic like schedules to be honest. I yeah. don't know what that is. I should probably talk to a therapist in depth about what it is that i need for all this activity for um but anyway so i really was under the impression the one thing i did not like about swimming was um it's pretty boring like the Mm. not not really like you get to travel and there's some fun parts you have your teammates and stuff like that but but tuesday
0: night tuesday night's boring though
1: you're staring at a black line
0: yeah for four hours and tuesday night you're home with a big meal that you just Picked up or made from the grocery store, probably pasta, and you're folded up on some cra- crappy couch watching a movie, right?
1: Sure, absolutely. And like, it's just a lot of rep- repetition. And I think to be good at anything, you need to obviously have like that repeatable component to it. Um, but that really drove me crazy. And I didn't, I, what I really didn't like was I didn't feel like my brain was having any creative stimulation to it. Like, I felt like that, you know, I knew, I knew how to swim. I knew, how to get better at swimming. And I knew how to, I knew, I I knew what the deal was there. Um, And I wanted to kind of explore my more creative side and like, you know, just do more stuff, like feel like I was getting better at other areas. Um, Very big on self-improvement, at least Mm -hmm. trying to be big on Mm -hmm. self-improvement. And so I signed up for this and spin my good friend, Spindra Beck, who is now a writer in Los Angeles. Uh, Yeah, she, she got
0: She got a pilot picked up, right? Or something, she, or yeah, an episode, that, I should say. She
1: room, which is yes. incredible. So competitive, like such an amazing achievement. Like truly could not be more proud.
0: Congrats, um, Ben. Still waiting on you to release the ep- the episode of the podcast you interviewed me for, waiting for four years now. Anyway, back to Laura. <laughs> oh
1: my God. Yeah, well, swim seriously. Swim, <laughs> swim, no, swim, swim serially. That was swim actually serially, my first-
0: my first ever podcast appearance. I remember her interviewing me. I was like, Oh man, I'm going to be a star now. Like <laughs> spins episode is going to come out and be a freaking superstar, man. And then she was like, yeah. like
1: podcast new. This is it, so fun.
0: <laughs> dude, we should, we should have done this four years ago, man. I'm telling you swim was ahead. our spin spins. Swim, swim. I know.
1: I know you start to like, Oh, it's too many S's
0: <laughs> swim drift. Uh, swim drift was ahead of the curve with that one. It
1: really was. Um,
0: improv you were going to take classes
1: improv and um i didn't even really know that much about improv i didn't i loved stand up growing up i loved it i listened to it all the time i have so many memories of god especially at that age dame cook was really big and i was the perfect age for that style of joke you know like my brain was just at that maturity level where i was like that's it's funny that's that's mm, like grade a right there i was like 11
0: yeah yeah, yeah, if you were if you were 15 when Dane Cook was big, and you look me in the face and tell me you didn't like him because he's yeah, uncool,
1: you're you're lying.
0: Like get 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 out of my face! Stop. I don't lying. want I don't want liars in my life. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Dane Cook was tight when you were 15. Let's just Probably. let's establish that now.
1: 100. <laughs> it was I mean whatever. I listened to that album. I I was a fan,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: not just Dane Cook. I my actually ironically my favorite comedian at that point was Louis Black. Who do you mm-hmm. know who that is?
0: He was also my favorite. Yes. Um, what was the one?
1: Man, which is Bla- so weird. Cause I was this like tiny or not tiny, very large actually, but like very wholesome young girl in from Rhode Island,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not probably his typical demographic. of yeah,
0: But Bla- black on Broadway is one of my favorite specials of all time to this day. It was unbelievable.
1: Him and Kathleen Matt. Anyway, I could go on that for a long time. So I'm going to cut myself off. Mm-hmm. But point being, I, um, lots stand up I never even remotely considered doing stand up it didn't seem real do you know what I mean like i'm like oh that's not like a thing
0: yeah but that that is why i'm asking the question because right. like you i was a huge stand up comedy i would literally get on kazaa and download stand up comedy specials yeah i would Comedy look
1: up Central half hours and i just download like everyone's who had come out
0: yeah, but i would never put myself there and you made the decision to do it so what, it was, what a was it? Process
1: a... With a lot of things that have definitely pushed me in that direction. So first being Spin did improv. Yeah. She was always um, she knew she wanted to be a writer from the beginning, was much more in tune with the creative world, knew about improv comedy, signed up for it in Austin. Austin had cold cold town theater. <laughs> Love them. And I started going. And I went to one of her shows and I was like, I know her and she's doing this. And I know her, but she's doing this, but mm-hmm. I know her. Like, you know what I mean? So like I was like wait a second so all of a yeah. sudden that became way more i was like how do you do that so i signed up for the first class and then i went to the class and it was terrifying terrifying should not have been nearly as scared of as i was of that first class
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh considering like looking back you're just like yeah so worked up over something that was could not have been more low stakes mm-hmm. truly <laughs> compared to everything else that we did like competing on for the united states and i was just i way more scared for that first improv class than I was for a lot of meets let me tell you that mm-hmm. um but I go there and then I I had a lot of fun and I wasn't funny <laughs> but I was um what I was finding was that I was really bad my mm-hmm. brain was really struggling to do like those word association games or like the variety of different exercises you do to kind of work on your creativity and I I struggled with it and I was like I'm a competitive person I was like so this architect is doing way better than me at this game where you figure out what comes after grape.
0: Yeah. And you ah. came into the room, he came to the room as an architect. You came to the room as uh, dude, I am a performer already. Like I'm a B swimmer, so I should be beating you. Yeah.
1: Right. So you, and oh God, so I went to the first class and I did the class and I went to level two and then I went to level three and then I just kept doing it. And I, the nice part is a lot of the times it was in the evenings. Um, it's not terribly like high impact or anything like that. So it was like a swimming friendly, you know, thing. I would just go from what seven to nine or something on Wednesday nights and hang out with some people who, the other thing I was obsessed about was the fact that I got to meet and become friends with people I didn't have any access to before mm-hmm. as a swimmer. Like, you know, I think it's getting better, but just the lack of, um, when I say diversity, I don't mean necessarily racial. I mean, by like the kinds of people that Mm. you're around people from different socioeconomic backgrounds people from just straight up back. you you you're inherently around people with athletic backgrounds you know Mm -hmm. your parents had enough discipline to take you to practice enough at least now you're here so you're gonna have like a certain kind of background and lifestyle accordingly true whereas in improv freaking i had people who like lived in a van Who'd come, what? Like that's so cool and interesting and like such a, there was a guy who was like a a performer at a Renaissance fair. I'm sorry, what? Like I would never, ever, ever, ever come into contact with those people before. And I was obsessed with that. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I had nothing in common with them, but like you'd find something and you'd be able to make like cool art with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was it terribly funny? No, a lot of times it wasn't at all, but like it was still something that you had to kind of cooperate with and go together for um so I did um I did a lot of improv and then I did sketch and I did a bunch of different things in Austin that I had a ton of fun with um and then I met Matt when Mm -hmm. I was um in my professional career as a swimmer and we started dating and he was a stand-up comedian as Mm. his job
0: when you guys met this was already happening yes but
1: he was um, not known at that point. I like to be clear about that. It wasn't like, I was like, oh my God, this guy's on TV.
0: Like, no, no, but it is important. It is important to distinguish, say between the two of you, because even though you were giving a ton of time over to it, um, and working on it, you thought of it at the time, would you say as a hobby?
1: Yeah. And And, and even though I still think of it like like I professionally, I think it's, it'd be tough for me to quit my job. I love my job.
0: But right. Um, right. But a lot of being a pro a is your strong
1: hobby. Let's call it that. Sure. Hobby
0: a, plus. <laughs> a lot of being pro is identity. And when you met Matt, his identity was, hey, I am a professional stand-up comedian. It's how I carry myself. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So for money. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I want to dig into Matt. I just I need a brief overview of sketch comedy because there might be a few of us listening who, you know, so- you you hear about improv, you hear about sketch. All I know is all we know is SNL. What was it about sketch that took you to the next level and opened your world even more to the possibilities of comedy?
1: Totally. I think sketch is um is interesting cuz in, so let me just back up a second. So obviously stand up is what you see going to say. But like that's just like microphone person telling jokes. Yes. yes. Clear. Improv is where everything is made up on the spot. It's uh, generally a team. There's like as little as two people. There's sometimes one person, but that's weird. It's Um, whose
0: line. It's whose line, right?
1: Whose line kind of style where you're given a suggestion and then you just go crazy. And it's pure chaos of, you know, building scenes and like act. it's acting, but you're making it up as you go. So you're playing, you're doing pretend Mm -hmm. with adults, which is a wacko concept. So that's improv. And then sketch is... um, like SNL, Um, just like you're saying. So SNL is actually the best example of it. You write out what you think is funny and you write about a three to four page sketch and then people act it out generally on stage. um, It can also be video sketches as well. There's different versions. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And Sketch comedy is crazy because you have to go and you have all infinite time available to you because you're writing. And you have to say, This is funny, here you go. This is something I think is funny. It's not like you don't have the protection of having come up with it on the spot.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, which is which there's a um your jokes.
0: There's a there's a novelty to the improv that kind of that kind of gives you space to be like this range of funny, but with sketch, it's like, hey, you had time to write this, make it better. Like,
1: why is that? This
0: is a this is a B and and I need an A plus. Yeah.
1: Stand up is even stand-up has kind of elements of both of it obviously there's the live performance aspect where it's you having to deliver it and the 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 situation the situational surroundings is going to really impact it but there's the other side of it it's like you write these jokes for you like you develop minute by minute of and you run it over and over and over again like why is it not funny mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you're literally doing your personal brand around these jokes, like, you better be good,
0: you know? Yeah, the, that the, those jokes are your deal.
1: <laughs> yeah, what's your deal? Those jokes, are they good? Like, yeah. That's your deal? Like,
0: really? We're going to come out of this conversation, and I'm going to call you up about co- co-writing a book called What's Your Deal With Me. <laughs> yeah, that should be my problem. What's your deal? <laughs> uh, so, okay. Improv. That laid the foundation for the performative aspect. Sketch is when you started to be able to sand just, it down. Go ahead, go ahead. I
1: just dipped my toe into sketch when I was in Austin. I think I focused largely on improv and and part of it is just the scheduling. To okay. be honest, it's really difficult to go too, too deep because comedy is inherently a nighttime activity. Yeah. And swimming. Is often a morning time
0: activity. And when fair, I, mean morning,
1: uh, I mean, like real morning, morning.
0: <laughs> yeah, real morning, not normie morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, okay, so let's let's move on to the stand up aspect because meeting Matt, I imagine, is inextric- inextricable from your exposure to stand up and your interest to start it. But what do you remember about your your introduction to stand up and making the the decision in your mind, like, you know, I've got these, I've, I've played with these other facets. I've developed my voice in improv. I really want to try it out with just me with a microphone in my hand. So what was that process like of, of seeing yourself as a stand up comic?
1: Interesting, because I was also doing a ton of other stuff at that time. Mm -hmm. I met Matt and then about six months later, um, retired from swimming Mm -hmm. and then about another eight months after that moved to New York city quite a year you know Mm -hmm. that was that's a lot to keep a girl busy right there and like figuring out being retired I was still doing improv at that time doing some sketch and stuff like that having fun with that but also like figuring out again what was my deal um, more professionally for for, what was my deal monetarily Mm -hmm. um started working in cybersecurity, which I'm so excited like I'm so happy that I did because such a crazy field that's a really good fit for my personality to be honest um, and then moved to New York and my first job in New York, I traveled an unbelievable amount. Like I was in like three cities a week kind of deal. There was no way I could have done anything but my job at that point, which is not uncommon. You know, like your first job, a lot of the times, like you you really got to, it really gets you, you know, that you really are working pretty hard for a little bit there. And um, I mean, you're, I'm still working very hard, but now I have a lot more, my feet under me. I know what I'm doing. I know that what's going on a lot more. Um, so I would say like the first. I'm trying to like my time, you know, keep me honest on my timelines here, but it's it it's like feels like a blur, honestly. Especially getting used to living in New York, it's like its own crazy experience. This is an mm-hmm. interesting city. A lot of the times, people leave after a year, and when they do, I'm like, I get it, you know, it's tough.
2: <laughs> yeah. But
1: it's also super super fun, and if you do thrive in it, you're. It's tough to imagine living somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, but it takes some time. So, so point being, there was probably like a couple of years, like let's call it two and a half years or so, where I was figuring just living and being retired from swimming, establishing myself in my career, um, which is its own full length conversation Mm -hmm. and, um, um, getting used to living in the city. Um, then I started doing improv here. I signed up for UCB. Uh, once I, so I switched jobs and I wasn't traveling as much anymore. And when I switched jobs, I was like. Sweet, I'm in the city. I actually can do a schedule, like a scheduled thing every week. I'm gonna sign up for Upright Citizens Brigade, um, which is the or was it's going through like with COVID, like with anything, it's mm. you know, figuring itself out. But going um the premier improv group, like improv institution in the country.
0: Right. Like, That's oh it's, it's up there with with um with Second City and and other places like that in terms of who's come out of it and, and their, their structure for how they develop people. Right.
1: Exactly. I mean, a lot of people like on SNL have UCB backgrounds or just a lot of really famous, um, really well-respected comedians, um, have roots there, Mm -hmm. um, because of this training program and this training program, it feels, it was interesting because like cold town, I'm a I loved it. I think that they had such a wonderful program, but UCB, everyone was there because they were like, I'm going to be a star, which yeah. is first of all, ridiculous, because who do you know that's a professional improviser? Exactly.
0: I it's think fun. we just summed it up. Yep. I
1: always <laughs> laugh about that, though, because I'm just like, what's the goal? Like, I mean, understanding, like developing this as a background, like a skill for you to have, that's amazing and super valuable, but like, you're not going to do
0: improv mm-hmm. as a thing. There's not a good... There's a good movie you've probably seen called Yes and, where it kind of lays out how um, far fetched people's goals can be when they sign up for a New York improv group. So I I understand what you're saying. Um, what? Being super serious, and these are yeah. people who were
1: um, there were obviously a variety of people. You know, like as you got further in the levels, though, kind of started to weed out more and more, and people were really like, you know, trying to trying to do something with their comedy. Um, which I thought was really cool and inspiring. And I was starting to figure out, I was like, okay, what does that mean for me? Like, do I want, I did sketch as well. So I started doing, I had a sketch team that I would do stuff with. Um, I did, I was on an improv group. Um, I kept, you know, working on it. Um, but ultimately one thing that I really found was pain in the ass was like the group component and I, I love being on a team, but like, good Lord, logistics are tough. Yeah. There's a bunch of New Yorkers trying to wrangle them for practice. Like, and you're restricted to being able to do your practice like once a at best once a week when everyone's schedules all coincide. Mm. That's really tough. Really, yeah. really, really tough. So um, while this was all going on, obviously Matt was continuing to develop in his career, he was having a lot of success in the stand-up world. And um, I was becoming obviously more and more familiar with kind of how the logistics of that worked. Like it started with me just going to shows and then I started making friends with various comedians because I just saw them so much um, and then figured out kind of like, okay, what is level one, like open mics. And I went to a couple open mics like to see friends or whatever it was. And I think that was really when everything changed. Cause I watched this, when you go to the, sh- the comedy cellar which is a club that one of the best in the world and Matt performs there regularly you're watching the, it's like going and you only watch the Olympics or nationals and you're like, son of a bitch. That's really good. Yeah. I'm never going to,
0: what am I going to go up? (laughs) You you see, you see the chasm between yourself and the people at the Olympics. Yeah. And I
1: think when I went to the first open mic was when I was like, Oh, Don, I, I mean, that still looks hard, but that's a hundred percent more in my realm. And it's so, it sounds so stupid because it's so obvious when I say it, like looking back, like that's obvious, but it's yeah. still like when you don't know the structures and when you don't know, there's no path to it. You don't, you're like, okay, like, I don't know. It just doesn't put two and two together. It takes a while, no, it takes a while for me.
0: I'm really glad you bring this up because that moment when it becomes real, I am absolutely finding as a pattern when people decide to dig into something that includes a a lot of high value situations and a lot of public facing work like comedy or swimming, you know, it had already happened for you already when you went to the zone select camp and you probably learned about the junior team from your junior team reps. That is, I would absolutely say that's the DNA of what you're talking about, going to these open mics. Maybe if you were, when you were 14 and you or 12 or 13, however you were old, you were at Zone camp. If you had gone straight to the Olympics, you'd have been like, uh i don't know about that but you went right. to his own camp and then it was the junior team etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah so so you went to an open mic you saw people who were like wait i'm at i'm funnier than that guy right? literally
1: people would just go up and just like you know and people who had never done it before and you know it's just like okay well you can literally go up there and stand i'm like this is an open mic you know it doesn't yeah. matter like there's yeah that's the, the whole thing is people do whatever, you know, so you are not going to necessarily get laughs, but like you will have accomplished, you will check the box of having done it,
0: you know, so what was the night you made the decision to go up?
1: <sighs> um, so I knew I wanted to do it. And my whole thing is, I was just like, I, I'm gonna be pissed at myself if we end up leaving New York, and I've never tried. Hmm. So, I went to a couple mics and I knew I was like playing around with the idea but I didn't know exactly like when or where. I also had the really awkward part of and this is part of what made the the podcast come about was the oh, oh a little bit I don't want to say eyes on me but like people knew who I was a little bit more as I was Matthew's girlfriend and he's well he's very well known in the comedy. Yeah. Mhm. And when when um girlfriend specifically it rarely falls the other way. But start doing comedy. There's like a negative connotation with that, largely, mm. um, which is again, I'm gonna shelve that. That's its own thing to unpackage. <laughs> um, but I was just like, well, that's a weird amount of pressure that kind of comes with doing this for the first time, and inherently, you're gonna fail. Like you're gonna mm. do bad. But the other nice part is that the comedy scene in New York is enormous. So like a decent amount of folks knew about like knew me, um, but not everyone by mm. any means. So. I, I had hung out at this one open mic for a while, the creek in the cave, and was like kind of like learning how it all went. Um, and then I decided I was like, I don't want to go up here because I know too many people here. And I signed up for basically like the Walmart of open mics. It was this laughing Buddha mic. They run on like three times, or they this all post, but or pre, ran on like three times a night. It, you had to pay ridiculous, you had to pay to go up. Um, uh again stage time in New York is like so precious and um you had to buy a drink and it's like there's this whole thing and it's very anonymous a lot of times people would go there and like just have you know very little background of comedy Mm -hmm. perfect just up somewhere where I can go and stand up on stage and not have to worry about knowing anyone and then like wow and then like (laughs) you know whatever yeah and I wrote some like really really simple jokes um I got I I should look back and see Like I've done, I've written so many since then that I can't like remember exactly what my first ones were.
0: That's okay. It'd
1: be interesting though, like what topics I was writing about. And then I did them. And then I was like, holy crap. It was such a cool feeling afterwards. I think I got probably like a pity laugh or two. I was (laughs) like, nothing, you know, it's the other side is open mics are like notorious, especially in New York city, notoriously antagonistic. They're not gonna laugh at you. It's literally people just like on their phones, just like, yeah, like openly not paying attention.
0: I wonder if the culture of New York City that the person who's there knows also knows that they are a New York City comedy fan, where it's like, uh, impress me. I'm in New York. Like, I wonder and, if there's an aspect to that. Like,
1: everyone at an open mic is like just there for their own. Shit,
0: right? Oh, I see. It's all people. I see. I they, see.
1: They're. It's like going to practice and be like, hey, can you watch me practice? And we're yeah. like, no, oh, I'm here to practice. Yeah,
0: I've got my own thing going on. So yeah. that must have been a good place for you to develop what you liked about it outside of the laughter because you got hooked on it, you know, at a place where people weren't going there to laugh at you. They were going there to focus on their own stuff.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's how kind of the other tough part is like, like people will ask like, oh, I want to do comedy. And I'm like, okay. The reality is you're probably never going to make it out of the open mic phase. Yeah. Most people don't, you know, like mm-hmm. let's say the funnel of people, it goes to get on shows in New York is really tough. It's really tough obviously yeah, this year here is completely upended the entire system and it's all topsy-turvy but like it's a difficult process to kind of you know as it goes through and you need to have first of all a couple minutes worth of material and writing five minutes is tough it takes a while like your first open mic is probably gonna be two or three minutes um which sounds crazy short but like when you're up there you're like oh okay i'm out of things to say now mm-hmm. you've got to go through that process of writing jokes which takes months and months and months Eventually, get five minutes worth of material together. Have met enough people. Um, maybe you do a bringer show, which is where you have like three friends who come to watch you and a ton of other crappy comedians perform. And it's like the worst thing you can do to a friend. But mm-hmm. God bless those homies that you know come through anyway. Um, and um, and and it's really it's it's basically just like the same less glamour than even age group swimming has.
0: You know. Oh my. Right. You but wouldn't like, expect that, you wouldn't expect that from the outside.
1: Exactly, it seems really cool, but it's like super not. And I, I really liked that because I think it actually weirdly hit a lot of the same muscle groups that I had established as a swimmer. Mm-hmm. Like those feel like those like, you know, swimming looks pretty cool from the outside. You're like, oh my God, you've got to go to like Hawaii or New Jersey or wherever <laughs> Or so And like Burger King, oh my God, it's just that all day. <laughs> But the reality is a lot of the times you're just smell like chlorine and just so tired and just, you don't want to go to practice and you have to go and then you just do a crappy set. And then you're like, maybe you don't even do well on the set and then you leave and you're like, Ugh.
0: Yeah, every day is I mean, not Applebee's.
1: Every day is not Applebee's unfortunately, <laughs> exactly. And that, um, I don't know. I think swimmers also get a li- like are a little sadistic and like that, like the work, the grind component like, I think that was one of the things that you really, I missed about my, in my job a little bit. We definitely have that to an extent, but it's different. Cause you're just like, I don't really care about the grind, you know, like, yeah, I yeah. really want to, I'm, I'm lucky now. I actually really, really like my company. So I'm a lot more passionate about it, but it's very different than like the personal glory of like, ah, the grind for my greatness, you know, like,
0: yeah, it's and, our, it's our, it's all of our deepest needs is to, to be great. Right. Yeah. Did you feel like comedy, before we dig into more technical stuff, did you feel like comedy um, was helping you process out kind of the end of your swimming career as well? Because it was kind of scratching that same itch where you could really dig into something that was, how should I say this, providing you a rush in a public space in the same way.
1: So what was interesting, and I'm actually super happy about this, is that I took a break between, like I didn't go directly into stand-up improv and stuff like that to an extent, but it's very different because it's, there's a very different feeling of you say a joke and people laugh at you than at the team or at the sketch or whatever it is. That's different.
0: It's your it's your equity in in the income, right? In, right? in the profits, I should say.
1: So I'm very happy that I didn't start stand-up earlier because I think it was very good for me to kind of like have a healthier relationship with my approach to the grind and work and stuff like that. Cause I think swimmers can tend to get a little addicted to needing to constantly get that validation of the the good times or the i'm projecting here but
0: anyway No, was, you're preaching the choir i get it yeah, i know exactly yeah. what you're talking about a lot of people listening probably know what you're talking about where it's like you know i got that rush that one time and now right. i gotta get it again
1: facing that like best time again and again and again and, yeah um and it's tough um well with stand-up you can certainly scratch a lot of similar itches with that uh eventually don't get me wrong. Those first couple is like, certainly, you know, Matt always jokes like he crushed his first open mic and then bombed for like two months straight, <laughs> <laughs> not a laugh.
0: Oh man.
1: Yeah. But like, you know what I mean? Like you're like, um, but eventually it was just, it's it's fun. It's fun to like, kind of like want to level up and like continue to, the other nice thing about comedy is the success is a much more loose definition. You know, there's a lot of different ways to kind of contribute to the comedy community or find yourself you know gaining respect or having these opportunities they come through very weird avenues you know mm-hmm. um and it's really like a make what you want of it kind of situation which was always a frustrating component to swimming like literally you can break i mean we've seen situations where people break world records and then don't make the olympic team yeah you know um comedy's different comedy is like oh well you crushed but this guy crushed harder that's okay. You both still crushed. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: It's not ranking. Um,
0: right, right. There, people aren't, people aren't taking away from each other with their own achievements. Right. I know what you, I you're kind of know nearly what
1: you're... as much as in swimming. Yes. But people in comedy, they'll probably be like, Oh, well, like you always are computing. And I'm like, no, you're not, not, not compare. Like, swimming is the most intense version of that I've ever heard of, to be yeah. honest.
0: I I do wonder if that gives you a unique perspective in comedy, because I have heard it's extremely competitive. And if you're like a culture, culturally, like a comedian, it's what you've done, like your whole life, like you're competitive against your up against people, and you almost can't pull yourself out of that feeling. I wonder if that's kind of given you perspective that you can kind of opt in and out of the competitive aspect and just just enjoy it. Like you said, like, that MCing job is seen as crappy by a lot of people you're like dude I'll take it that's sweet like yeah. it's still it's still scratching the same process itch that I get from comedy I don't totally. necessarily need to be climbing the ladder against everybody else
1: exactly it's an opportunity for me to like continue to get better at this thing that's like so i guess my my approach and my my viewpoints on competition are completely warped by my swimming reality and like having been you know number 1 for a decent amount of time but in in various times then you go up and down and like that's I think another interesting thing is you're watching people who haven't necessarily had a ton of success in other areas of their life some people definitely but some people not Mm -hmm. and um how people deal with setbacks and watching like comedians like they're gonna have a hot year or whatever for some reason they're an industry darling and then they fall off or and like that's just the reality of a career and we know that having done a 20-year career you know Mm -hmm. but watch people are like learning that now and don't get me wrong i'm sure you know if i get blessed with that kind of a situation again i'll i'll probably have similar reactions but hopefully i'll have some of the perspective of you know having already gone through similar things with swimming you've gone up and down and up and down and up and down
2: Mm -hmm. year
1: after year after year it's just always something new and it's that consistency that's the the big component to it being able to kind of have your sense of self and just like understand like your worth isn't fully in what you're doing, um, your performance, you know.
0: Yeah, you're yes, it's it is a separate thing from your worth as a person that right. you're, you're you're on it st- you yes. It's not
1: who you are. And yeah. I think that's part of the reason I'm happy I didn't start stand up too early because I think it would have been almost too similar to something that I might have had the uh try to just swap it in. You yes. know? Um whereas um like a jam block yeah I really Yeah. And I know like there's, I'm sure there's more thinking that I need to do for sure. There always is. There's always more evolving, Yeah. Um, but it definitely gave me a break. And like, I got to travel. I got to just like, kind of like explore, like what my deal was, you know? (laughs) I'm gonna take. I'm taking that way. That's my takeaway. <laughs> I
0: I don't need to, which everyone should do right after this, is go listen to Laura and Matt's joke writing 101 episode. But I don't need to listen to joke writing 101 to know that we are crushing the callback humor right now with this we what's your deal we are. thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so
1: it's yeah, like, how did they remember? It's like magic tricks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh i love that is probably my favorite brain hack is when i have a long conversation with someone i'll put a little a little button on the end of it with uh with a callback because i know everybody will remember x anyway on that topic what did you draw from your career as a swimmer when you started seriously st- studying stand-up comedy um and if you didn't then maybe just take oh, us through what you enjoyed about studying similar.
1: it it's weirdly similar once again which is why i'm happy there was the break between It would have been too tempting to just swap them and i needed that break um it's crazy like a lot of similarities for instance a lot of the the strong stand-ups will tape their sets and what i mean is like they'll just set up now it's so easy to tape it but like video yeah a little tripod and video their sets and watch it after Mm -hmm. and sounds pretty straightforward we've done that with our races a million times That's such a novel concept for a lot of people. And you learn a ton about it. Like stand up is a physical, not sport, but activity, whatever, Mm -hmm. performance art. Um, The way that the audience is seeing your body move is really important. And a lot of the times, like I didn't realize my, I would um, video my sets and then I didn't realize that I was like running around on stage. I was Mm -hmm. nervous. So that was coming out in my like shifting around as I was up there which is really distracting unless you're doing it in, like intentionally. So those kind of things like, and that's just, a, that's a very strong, big example but there's a lot of different things like the, the movements associated with a joke, um, the technicalities of a joke. Jokes can get very, like Matt's jokes are word, you know, perfect almost. Like they're mm-hmm. really tailored in. Mine tend to be a lot looser and that's some, that's cause I'm young. I'm still figuring out what my voice is and how to really drill in on the funniest version of it. Um
0: Matt's also like a mutual contact slash friend of ours, Chris Kubik, where he tends to make a Russian doll out of everything that he's saying. It'll stack up 10 different ways and like you said, be word perfect. Yes. Um, but continue but continue because the not all comedians are the same as we know, but it really right. comes down to what you guys study and the choices that you make when you're writing your comedy.
1: Yep. So so um there's discipline. So I think the, the, the easiest, like obvious parallel is needing the need to go to practice mm-hmm. and you go to, you know, depending on your level, open mics or eventually to shows like Matt, at this point, he'll go to multiple shows a night. And it's basically like he's doing doubles, like going to practice. And none of those shows are going to be like, this is make or break, but it's, an, it's a chance to just continue to get stronger. Right. And stronger means a lot of different things it means more use to different circumstances. It means working on a new joke. It's like, almost like you're learning new strokes in day in, day out, Um, thinking of new premises, thinking of, you know, new physicalities, um, meeting new people. Networking is a huge component of stand up and comedy in the entertainment industry because ultimately like no one's gonna book you if they don't know who you are and they only meet you when they see you, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the... harsh reality of people who <laughs> are mm-hmm. you know and then um so that's really similar you have to go and you have to go spend the time just the time and the reps and like getting in the reps um so that's you know probably the, the easiest one and then there's the component where it's like the self analysis and being able to really be very methodical and um um i don't know just looking at it from that third person perspective and saying like what is the what am i doing on stage and it's t- What's really tough is you have to be really critical of yourself. And it's a very vulnerable thing. Cause you're saying like, again, you're in that position where you're like, this is, I think this is funny. And like, you have to be like, okay, did people actually laugh at that or no? And not necessarily like, if they didn't laugh and it's an open mic, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad joke, but like there's a decent chance it's a bad joke. And mm-hmm. are you going to be able to divorce yourself from your ego enough to, you know, Get rid of that joke or change that joke. Or even if you really like that version, realizing like, hey, no, that's not actually good. Um, So really, really have to be able to be in touch with um, that kind of very clinical analysis of what you're doing,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, which I think is similar in swimming. It's like, I don't care if, you know, like, is my elbow up or not? Like, am I catching water or not? Mm -hmm. Am I flipping tight or not?
0: Are you hitting your pace or not? I mean, that's the, yeah, you, that's if, the if, realest thing there is.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Did you, yeah, did you
1: hold your pace? Doesn't nothing else yeah. matter. That's the nice thing about swimming though, is like it is pretty clear. You can like be like, oh well, I held my pace, but it's because I muscled through my arms and I should have been kicking more. And like that's yeah. not your practice. But like, did you go the time? Yes. Um, so that was a long winded answer saying tons of parallels. Yes.
0: <laughs> it sounds like it. Um Let's dig into one last part um, before we wrap because the podcast is the thing that's probably taking up a good bit of your time these days. Um, man, as someone who also was running a podcast, its I did not realize how much goes into it. <laughs> yeah, I'm loving it and I'm learning a lot and that's what I want to dig into for you. What is the podcast teaching you that you may not have learned before either about yourself or about comedy, which is the genre of your podcast?
1: Well, what I love about the podcast is, again, it's, you have so much freedom with it to do what you really want. And I think like selfishly, like I've just kind of been using it as a way to kind of like one of the episodes that we're going to be releasing soon, hot, hot little, actually it might come out by the time you, this already comes out, but. It, it will. Uh, yeah. Probably. But um, <laughs> uh, We interviewed the guy who founded the comedy seller and like, oh. that's super cool. Yeah.
0: That's, that's incredible. Cool.
1: Just to be able to talk to this person and be like, like, and it's, it'd be almost weird to just call and be like, can I talk to you? Like you could do that, but I don't have quite the the balls for that yet. So I'm just like, can we interview you for pod for your, our podcast? But like, really, I just want to know, like, what's your deal? Like, how did that happen? And you Mm -hmm. get to dig in on all those different things. So I love that about pod, the, you know, doing the podcasting. And I think that's kind of helped give me the, um, um, almost feels like I have the permission to do other things like the producing and stuff like that, putting together a show. It's like, you know, if you want to do something, you, you can like just that real feeling of freedom and, you know, again, like, um, control over your life. And like, if you want something to happen, like you can organize it and make it happen. And, you know, we also come from very strict, like disciplined backgrounds. So needing the discipline to get everything pulled together and like having all the, you know, the DJ and the photographer and everything coordinated, the logistics isn't necessarily the hard part. It's more just like feeling like that is something that you should be in the position to do mm-hmm. where I'm just going to reach out to like a comic that has a freaking HBO special and be like, do you want to do my show? And like, I mean, it's COVID time. So there's less shows. So, but yeah, we're like, sure. I'm like, mm-hmm. great. <laughs> That's so cool.
0: Yeah. I, as someone that sucked at sales and I've tried it multiple times in my life, yeah. um, I am strangely having no problem reaching out to people to talk on the podcast. And I was like, oh, this is what I should have been doing when I was selling stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> It's, but it, you know, flip-flop completely different. It's just a matter of what you feel confident talking to people about. Um, let's wrap here. I really appreciate your time, Laura. It was so great talking to you. Yeah. Um, can you take everyone through the different media sources just to wrap up where they can find you both podcasts, social media and everything?
1: Yeah, um, I would say my my most active one would just be on Instagram. Just follow me at Laura Sogar, L-A-U-R-A-S-O-G-A-R. Some cat content, there's a whole variety of things on there. A lot of my comedy stuff. Then I'm on Twitter, I'm not super active there, but it's Laura Sogs, S-O-G-S, which is my college nickname. And um. Yeah, those are probably the primary things. And then follow the, the podcast is Does Stand Up um which is linked on my Instagram and stuff like that. So it's um it's fun if you want to learn more about the it's very much like involved in obviously the logistics and the behind the scenes of the comedy world. So niche to an extent, but um you know I've got a lot of fe- people who listen who aren't comics who just find it an interesting little world to, yeah. to dive deeper into. So um give it a listen. Shoot us a note if you like it.
0: I think I've found it to be wonderfully similar to mine in that we're we're pulling the we're pulling the curtain back on a world that we're both very invested in. And yeah. I find that extremely cool. I think you and Matt are an awesome duo when you're on together. And like I said, if anybody needs an in with the show, please listen to the joke writing one-on-one episode. It was unbelievable. I texted oh, I'm so you. i happy to hear that. Yeah, We're going to get the 201 or whatever soon, too. So please shoot me a text because that, I will. I'll let you I, know. I, I, yeah. I texted you guys. And for people to know, if anybody is a, is a fan of comedy, Matt and Laura basically just give a blueprint to everything you do and don't like from professional comedians and also people in your life who think they are funny but are not. <laughs> yep. So good
1: times, it's good times. And I, that if, is just such a wealth of resources there. So. And
0: if you guys want any more, if you guys want more content with me and Laura, we're also going to be recording a few bonus ba- uh, videos for Patreon. So head over to my Patreon page, um, subscribe if you haven't already, and check out uh, Laura's take on applying comedy to other parts of your life and also how just having a structure for learning has pushed, us through, pushed her through the comedy world, the swimming world, and also the professional world where she's a successful tech salesman. So Laura, thank you very much.
1: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for stopping. Have Thanks for stopping by Pro Corner and uh, see you later. All right. Sweet. All right. That's the show. Uh, thank you to Laura for stopping by Pro Corner. Again, if you want to find out more about her, you can check out her Instagram page at Laura Sogar. Uh, you can also check out her podcast called She Does Stand Up Two, available on all podcast streaming services. And then keep an eye out for events that she produces and hosts with uh, Now and Then Comedy. If you want to learn more about Pro Corner, uh, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out on Instagram at Pro Corner, Facebook at Pro Corner. And if there's anything that you want to talk about with me, you can email me directly at austin at procornerpodcast.com. Thanks for stopping by Pro Corner. Have a great week.